time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. One of the most inescapable parts of life is actually the end of life, death. It's something we don't want to talk about. It's something we all have to face, whether it's our own death or the death of a loved one. And yet we spend a lot of time avoiding thinking about that, avoiding discussions about that. Well, today, my guest is Willie Donaldson. And Willie is a business professor, not a clinician, not an expert in grief. But he became much more of an expert in grief because he had conversations with his parents about their own death and what they wanted out of that. And from that, he wrote a book, and that book is what we were going to be talking about today as Willie and I talk about the difficulties, the struggle of people having those discussions, and also the importance of it and how it can transform the relationships, but also the decision-making that happens at the end of life that's so difficult. So listen in as I have a discussion with Willie Donaldson about the estimated time of departure. Willie, thanks for being here. It's, this is always a uh, you know exciting topic to talk about, right? Death. <laughs> it's one everybody wants to talk about, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's you can't have a more final discussion <laughs> than that. But it's actually a very important topic that I think um, bears a lot of our conversation because I mean, this this is something none, no one's going to avoid, right? I mean, this is one hundred percent so far. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's that's what's so striking is it is the one thing we all share universally, and yet yeah. we don't want to talk about it and we avoid it like the plague. And and that's interesting. You would think that after all these years of, of certainty, we would have gotten good at it. And there are some some traditions and some areas in the world where it is you know, considered the right thing to do is to have those discussions. Yeah, it's interesting you use the term like the plague, um, <laughs> given the end result of that. And and more seriously, uh, given this past year, I mean, I, I, I don't think this past year has done anything but keep death and dying in our face, you know. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that's really strengthened my desire to get this message out is don't miss the the opportunity to have these conversations because you, there may be another pandemic where people couldn't have them. Yeah. And, and you may not get to. And that's as I've studied grief and talked with with grief specialists, the most the, the people fear the most is not or they they regret the most is what they didn't say. Mm-hmm. You know, it helps if you've had these conversation, it flattens the grief profile and helps you with the sadness and everything else. But if you regret not having said these things, it's worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, um, my, I guess, good fortune, um, was back in the seventies. My father was working on his, uh, doctoral project and it was on death and dying. And so, um, I got to sit through quite a few lectures and workshops on death and dying. And I remember the book denial of death. Uh And at that point, the author was hoping we would get beyond that back in the seventies. And here we are 50 years later, still, denying, still pushing that out of our perspective. So let's start with this a little bit, um, since I brought <laughs> just roughly pushed it out there that <laughs> this is about death. Um, but let's talk some about your message, where that came from. Tell us a little bit about the story behind it. 
Absolutely. So I was, um, I think, like many, many people, um, obviously very attached to my parents, and and they named me the executor of their estate. They were one of the the very small percentage of the population that actually does start to think about these things uh, and named me executive executor of their estate. And I thought, wow, that's great. Good news, bad news. The good news is I love you too dearly. I'll do anything for you. The bad news is I'm kind of a planner. I want to know how this is going to work. And as I started to tease into those questions, they got uncomfortable. They just really didn't want to deal with the, all of the, the aspects of it. And, and I did. And so the, the story is really just one of a, a normal guy who just goes through sort of bumbling towards the finish line with his parents. Because as I researched the area, there's been a lot of great work that you just recommended, but a lot of it is is very clinical mm-hmm. or very spiritual. And I wanted to write a story and tell a story that it, this is just the average Joe who can can do this. I'm not a trained specialist in this. I'm not a medical doctor. Um, and, and and you can do this if you just have a little humility and empathy and, and also are willing to open up and explore what's there. So the interesting thing is just as I'm thinking about it, you're talking about the story of a conversation and most of the literature actually focuses on the grief process. The focus is how you move through grief, right? not how you think about this and process the discussion before grief. Exactly. And that's what I found is I went looking, there was a lot of, you know, and, and I actually write about it in the book. I said, well, this how do I process grief is really interesting, but it's sort of like planning for overtime after you've already lost the game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not very helpful. Yeah. Um, and and that was kind of how my parents thought about it. Is, oh, we don't care about all this stuff. We're going to be dead. So what do, what do we care? I said, yeah, but what about us? What about the people that are going to be living with you? And and what about us? And what about you? what you want in this process? And that's where I found People kept telling me, well, it's so unique that you're doing this and you're exploring this. And, and all of the sort of headwinds that I ran into as I tried to have these conversations with people in the medical community and other areas, uh, it was just clear to me, well, wow, we are not very good at this. And 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 I was encouraged by so many people to then write about it. Please mm-hmm. tell the story. Please get it out and get it out in a fashion that's approachable, right? So there's so, some of the work is just terrific that I read, but it can be fairly daunting and thick and, and dense. And I wanted to write something that was funny and approachable and, and um, you know, empathic, just that, that people could connect with and, and see themselves in that story and say, okay, I see why I need to do this. And, and also let them know it isn't just grim and and despair there is love and passion and fun in it and and it's a much richer approach so your book is estimated time of departure that's correct um and it it's not a 400 page tome uh, it's a short digestible piece tell us about the title why why that title Yes, my father is an aeronautical engineer, quite a, a well-known aeronautical engineer, and was a pilot. And so um, a pilot f- files a flight plan. When when you're getting ready to go on a trip, um, a pilot has to do everything. They have to check the weather, and they have to check the, the amount of gas and the route they're going to take and when they're going to take off. And so you, you put in an estimated time of departure. And as I thought about my discussions with my parents, it's like, okay, we're planning a very big, very permanent trip. Mm-hmm. So the whole book is then themed 
that way. So it's, you know, meeting in the in the departure lounge, taxiing out and then, you know, getting to arrival. And so I tried to theme it in, in terms of something that was approachable and people could connect with. Yeah. So um, that this is not a single conversation that you're talking about. No, and and that's one of the the um, things I implore people to do is start early. You know what people do is they say, "Well, I'll just wait until I have to have these conversations." But <laughs> that's not a good time when when people are not well or are emotionally already compromised. Mm-hmm. That's a really hard time to have them. In fact, one of my um, recommendations is start early and start when you don't feel that it's imminent, because then it's a, it eases a lot of the pressure for people. You know, one of the things, I, so I was a chaplain for uh, several years at the beginning of my uh, my career, my clinical career. And um, I, what I noticed is that everybody who, everybody wants to fall asleep and die. You know, they would just die in their sleep, right? right. And uh, no big fanfare or anything. And everybody wants their loved ones to have a process where they have time to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so we get this opposing viewpoint on how it's going to end. Yeah. And it just strikes me. I mean, it could go either way, but if you're waiting until, you know, it's time to have that conversation, you don't know when that is. No, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, it's funny that you mentioned it. That was exactly what, as my parents kept deflecting and didn't want to talk about it, I finally sort of said, okay, folks, how do you want this movie to end? And they said, well, we don't know what you're talking about. I said, no. What what do you see as as the scenario? Picture in your mind what it is, and they said exactly that. Well, we're just going to go to bed one night and not wake up. And yeah. I was like, "Good plan. How are you going to pull that off?" Yeah, yeah. Like hadn't really thought about that, and so then we we started to to break through and really get to you know some of the essence of the discussion. And and that's my point is it takes time. This is not something you sit down in fifteen minutes and say, "Okay, mom, dad, how is this going to work?" Oh, okay, we've got it all done. Um, and I, I break the book into, or the concept into two two areas. One is I think um, we, one we don't do a good job overall. You know the statistics that I cite are, are dismal. But even the very small percentages that do do the work to have some of these discussions, they tend to stop at what I call the biological and the rational decisions. Mm. Right? Where does the furniture go? Um, do I want a medical directive? Do I want to have any life-sustaining activities, a feeding tube, those kinds of things? And all of those are rational, and they're they're not easy to make, but they're they're fair, relatively easy. But the emotional and biographical piece is the one that's harder to tease out, but is where all of the the love and passion resides. And, and so I'll give you an example of that: is um, you know the the biological and, rath- and rational side is you are lacking nutrition. You can't get enough nutrition because of a swallowing problem or your, your organs are not processing food well. So then the rational thing is, well, we'll put in a feeding tube. And then the rational decision after that is, well, I don't want a feeding tube. Okay, fine. But you have to then go to the bio or the biographic and emotional side of that and say, Denying a feeding tube is by definition saying I'm cutting off nutrients and I'm going to die. And you have to have that follow on conversation. You have to get to that emotional and biographical piece of it. Because if you don't, I saw and, and heard stories of candidates who had medical directives, did not want a feeding tube. But then when the decision came, the doctors looked at the family and said, well, here's where we are. And the family was split. Some would say, oh, yes, absolutely. We need to keep mom alive with a feeding tube, even though they said they didn't want one. They had never had the discussion 
and emotionally gotten over what those discussions mean. And that's what's so important about having the discussions. Yeah, I mean, that was interesting for me as a chaplain on how many uh, times there would be this split in the family um, and that the medical personnel were, you know, they, I mean, if the person was going to die, they knew they didn't have to deal with that person. They had to deal with the family going forward. And uh, that was a difficult time because uh, some people would say, well, I had that conversation you know, with my parent and somebody else in the family would say, I don't believe you. I mean, you know, weird things happen around grief. Absolutely. And uh, in those moments of decision. And and I think part of what um, you're talking about is that when everybody is, I mean, everybody, I'll put that in the big quotes, but when the important people have had that conversation and are all on the same page, when it comes up, it's not one person having to make this really tough decision and feeling the pressure and then living with the aftermath of that. Exactly. All of my brothers and sisters, they knew exactly what mom and dad wanted and how this was going to work. And there were no questions. And when the time came, I knew exactly that everybody was in, in sync and it just made the end of the, of life so much better because we could celebrate and you could then go into hospice and have these wonderful long goodbyes knowing that we've all said those things and and then it can just truly be okay this is the end and and that's a magical time and that's what i want people to come away from the story is okay that's that's a better way to do it than to you know fight your way through and then regret all this stuff and hash it all out after the fact Hmm. what do you think keeps people from having that starting that conversation what do you well, I write about it in the book. I mean, and you, we joked about it and laughed about it. Duh, it's just no fun. Right? It's not a fun topic. And I think there's also a phobia about it. I think it's just, it's, people just don't want to. They feel like they shouldn't. I think my parents felt um, that they were letting us down if they talked about it. And that they would, they would upset us if we talked about it. And I, I think that's fairly um, common. And I think it's just not something pe- we see people doing well um, in the West. And I think, you know, there's a, but as I say, there are other areas of the world where this is a, a very accepted principle. Uh, one of the things that really comforted me, Lee, um, in, in the early phases is I read a lot of, of philosophies and, and traditions around death and the African tradition that says that the physical death is just one manifestation and you don't actually die finally with any finality until the last person on earth forgets who you are and doesn't speak your name. Mm. And by that metric, my parents are still with me because I Mm. talk about them all the time. They're still with me. And I think that's, if we can get to the point where we really understand um, that, that the physical death, it's inevitable, it's going to happen. And if we can deal with that as a part of our life and, and be ready um, when that time comes, it's just so much more pleasant for everyone involved. Doesn't mean it's not sad and it doesn't mean it's not painful, but there are no regrets about how it transpired. You know, I think that same belief is shared in uh, Mexico where Day of the Dead, you know, Mm -hmm. is to remember them and keep them alive in our memories. Absolutely. Which is, I mean, I I would say that we do a lot of that everywhere when we're telling the stories and telling our kids about their, you know, parents before, our parents and parents before them and on. Um, But there's something uh, different when you uh, put that in, and it's not just remembering them, but keeping, keeping them alive in some ways. Uh, That's a different piece. Um, I I wonder, um, 
you know, talked about the phobia, the, uh, where the superstitions also get in. Cause for a long time, I would do this exercise and in, in some of my seminars where I'd have people write their obituary. And I finally quit because it got them so uncomfortable with naming how they were going to die. And so they would always give this impossibility to it. You know, like it was so far out in the future. I'm like, uh, you're not going to make it another hundred years. Let's just be honest here. <laughs> or they would put it past, you know, it had already happened so that they had already lived beyond it. And then the ways they would die, you know, were just interesting to hear. And I finally said, okay, let's just write your eulogy instead mm -hmm. of that. But there's, there's some superstition that really gets called up into this. And it's funny, I've really dug to try to find out where that started and how it started. You know, um, some some of it, I believe, comes from there are some spiritual traditions which say, you know, it's all in the Lord's hands or, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so we don't have a, a say in how that's going to happen. And, and so I think some of it was backing off from that perspective just to say that I'm not in control, someone else is. But then I think just societally, we just stopped having to deal with it. I think, you know, one of the uh, the groups I talked to is a bunch of doctors who really believe, um, Jacob Appelt, in fact, has written a great book, Who Says You're Dead? And it, it asks the question, you know, who gets to pronounce that? It shouldn't be the doctors or the nurses or whatever. It should be you making that determination of how yeah. that's going to occur. But we've gotten away from that tradition. And, and because medicine has gotten so good, we really can extend life almost indefinitely. Um, and that's problematic because then you get into areas where people have dementia or they can't physically make these decisions. And so I think we just, you know, a number of things came together to cause us just to stop having these conversations in, in real time. And we're just not good at them anymore. And now there's this um, sort of um, belief that you, you shouldn't have them. And I just think we have to, to change that. You know, it's interesting. We, we started talking about the current day, your know, current situation where every day for the past you know, year and a half, we've been watching the ticker you know, every day of how many casualties there have been, how many people have died. And yet um, the disconnection is there. I mean, our, uh, it's not been, it would not have been long ago that people would have regularly been dying in their homes. Yep. And um, so while it's been more in our awareness this past year and a half, it's still been distanced um, yeah. and for, for medical reasons. I mean, I'm not, I'm not discounting that, but we're still distanced from that reality. Um, and so many people have never been faced with, you know, death. They go to the funeral. Mm -hmm. It's already over, right? And they're not yeah. faced with that process. Yep. So yeah. stepping into that is a whole different uh, mindset. It is. And, and when my father passed away, my, my nephew was in the Peace Corps and he was in Africa. And we had a fascinating discussion around that. And just exactly as you said, in his village, he said, Uncle Willie, you know, people are dying every day. They're mm -hmm. in their huts and we know it's coming and we talk about it. It's a natural thing. He said, but I come back to America and nobody talks about it. Nobody discusses it and nobody sees it. It's pushed off into hospitals and nursing homes and other places. And we just don't want to deal with it. And my argument is you really do. That's where all of the, mm. the joy and passion and love and, and yes, it's sad and, and heartfelt, but it's just much more alive when you have these discussions before mm -hmm. and why you still can. It was just a, a, a great learning and kind of counterintuitive learning for me. Yeah, I mean, for many people, there's this whole segment that's missing. You know, you go from 
oh, they're sick to now you see them and they are looking lifelike. You know, I mean, it's, it looks like they're sleeping is the common phrase, right? And in uh, in some ways, we are so there's that impact difference there that that spaces us out from the reality of what happens. Right. And and what that, you know, if you study um, philosophy and hermeneutics, the hermeneutic cycle of closing the story and understanding the whole story, it's hard for us to to square that, you know, or, you know, come and complete that circle because we haven't had the discussions. We haven't seen um, and, and had the discussions about that end of life that, that it's so important. Mm-hmm. It's so finite. <laughs> so and for sure, finite. And, and which is really, I mean, my, my, I've uh, read some stoic philosophy that says, you know, every day we should be thinking about our finitude so that every day we can go, what matters today? You know, what's important today um, rather than just pretending like it's never going to happen. And those conversations you're talking about are based in pretending like it's never going to happen. So we always have more time to do that. Um, and, and yet and, and, you know, there's that that thing for for you probably having those conversations tied up some stories with your parents. But it also is a big reminder for you about what about you? Mm-hmm. What's down the road for you? Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the things I talk about at the end of the book is, you know, you, dear reader, might be asking, how do I feel about all this after having sort of immersed myself in it? And, you know, it, it's just I I have had those conversations with my family and I, I want everyone to know exactly how I feel about it. So there are no questions and that, that we can all move on. And as you say, wake up with that stoic philosophy of, hey, this today is a gift and let's make sure we don't miss it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that is uh, pretty clear to me is if somebody reads your book and decides to have a conversation, what you're not saying is, well, you'll be comfortable, right? I mean, it, it's still going to be uncomfortable. Yep. And the question is whether it's important enough, which it is, to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, though. Um, so you had to get beyond that discomfort. How did you start the conversation with your parents? I mean, I'm sure they didn't say, oh, by the way, Willie, you're executor, so let's chat. Right. No, they they just said that. And and then, as I say, we did all of the the um, biological and rational things. We, you know, went and met with an estate attorney and and created do not resuscitates and medical powers of attorney and all of that stuff. And we all felt really good about that. But then it was, I started wondering, well, wait a minute, what about the biographical and emotional side of it? Where, where does it end? How does it end? What does everyone know? And I started talking to my brothers and sisters and talking to my parents. And that's where they started to get uncomfortable with, well, wait a minute, are you trying to rush us down this? <laughs> so I don't want to rush you. I just want to make sure that I know everything you're thinking about it so that you know, so that I can help you when that time comes and, and, you know, and that your sons and daughters are available to you. And, and that was the hardest part to get through that sort of armor that I think we all have on that, that um, sort of um, willingness to open up and really have those discussions. Can you say a little bit more about it? Because it, it, it felt like these rational medical decisions um, you were looking for what backs it up in the biological, but w- how do you divide those two categories? Yeah. So, um, 
as I say, the it's relatively easy to say, okay, well, you know, we're going to divide it up and you get the car and you get, you know, this piece of furniture and on the estate side and on the medical side to say, well, you know, I don't want any heroic efforts taken to save my life and I don't want this and and I want this person to make my decisions for me to have a durable medical power of attorney, et cetera. But it goes right back to the discussion we had earlier and that says, okay, so now the doctor says your mom, your dad can no longer eat, therefore we need a feeding tube. But the, you know, the document says they don't want it durable medical power of attorney goes to the daughter. If you haven't had that conversation, if she says, oh, that's not what I wanted. I, they never told me that, you know, give it to them. And I can't tell you how many times I heard that as I talked to people who said that their wishes were not. In fact, I'll tell you, not funny story, but a, kind of a tragic story of a doctor. Once I shared my parents' wishes with their family physician, he told me about uh, another family, obviously didn't reveal the name, but he said he had a 93-year-old patient who was asking him, the doctor, to have a conversation with his kids to say, please stop doing these medical procedures on me, mm. <laughs> right? They just weren't listening. And, and so I think that's the, the issue is you've got to go that extra mile to try to make sure you understand what all of those legal terms mean. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to tease it out just a little bit further. So absolutely. You've got this document. I mean, we talked about the legal documents. There's the will for the property and then the durable uh, power of attorney and medical choices and all that stuff. So you got these documents, but there's something beyond just saying to the family, hey, read this and make sure you understand it. What is the what is the step beyond that that this conversation is? Making sure you have the conversations amongst the family and with the the parents. directly to make sure there are no questions about, you know, where this is going to be. And and if you're the person giving the directive, making sure that you're very certain they're, those things are going to be carried through. I mean, my parents are very clear, this is what we want. Um, they wanted to be assured that that when their time came, their time had come and that they were in control of that decision, no one else. And I think that's the most important thing, Lee, is to go that extra mile and make sure everybody's comfortable. There are no questions left unanswered and all the scenarios have sort of been covered. Yeah, just my observation uh, in those hospital years were you're at a point when the person who is actively dying is at their most vulnerable um, at their scariest point and no longer feel like they have control. They don't have control of their body. Many times they don't have control over all the medical stuff around them. Um, that has to be a, um, reassuring piece to know that everybody's on that same page. Everybody is clear about that. That's what I found with both of my parents. It was crystal clear that they had made those decisions and all of us knew what they were. And there was no discomfort at all with the decisions. Again, sadness and the the certitude is terrible because you know, you're going to be losing your parent very shortly, Mm -hmm. but the certitude just, just makes all the difference with them. They were absolutely comfortable with their decisions at that time. So how did that conversation start? I mean, I, I kind of, I want to give a, at least a couple of places where people can say, oh, I need to think about how to, how would they start that conversation? What, uh, how did you start it? How would they start it? Um, well, you know, it, it's funny. I, as I said, um, 
when I first asked, you know, how does this movie end? And they said, well, we're just going to go to bed one night and not wake up. I was like, interesting. Nice. <laughs> and then I just dropped it. And the next time it's like, okay, so if you're in the hospital, do you? <laughs> if that doesn't happen, if you wake up. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I just started talking about, you know, various scenarios that could happen. Um, and I'll give you an example right from the book. I took them. They happen to be in one of these um extended care facilities where you're in independent living, you know, which you're, you're just, there's no a sort of um, intrusion in your life and assisted living. And then, you know, like the, a continuum. Right. And I said, let's go for a walk. And as we went through the facility, you could see them getting less and less comfortable with mm-hmm. the way they were going to be. And by the time we got to the long-term care facility, they were like, don't ever let us be in here. I said, well, but this is where the train is going. So if you don't want this, let's talk about what you do want and where you do want to be. And that's okay. We want to be at home. Well, we don't want people to come in and visit with us. Okay. But that's not, that's not rational. And so what, what do you want in terms of your medical care? Are we certain that you want this versus that? And and just having that certainty, making sure it's not looking at the, the lawyer or the doctor and saying, Oh yeah, we, we trust what he or she said, it's going that extra mile and making sure you're apps. Everybody's certain about what is coming. What would help uh, people who are thinking about that to prepare themselves? I mean, what you you had to get ready. I mean, that's a conversation. Whenever we have difficult conversations, I think we have to spend a little time self coaching, getting ready. Mm-hmm. What were some pieces that you did that helped you to be ready for that conversation? Yeah, so I started learning. I started looking at the various traditions and philosophies around death. I started talking to people, you know, a hospice care coordinator. I started talking to um, my father and mother's doctors about it. I started talking to friends um, who had lost someone uh, just to understand. And and as I did that, I found people that could be a touchstone for me that I could go to and say, wow, I'm really struggling with this part of it help me think about it. And so I think it's just getting everybody more aware. And that also helped my parents and my brothers and sisters when, you know, I could say, look, I had a great conversation with this person, a hospice coordinator say, why don't I give you her number and you talk with her? And and that just made everybody more comfortable about the whole topic. Mm -hmm. It's it's a hard topic and, and any hard topic is worth exploring deeply, I think. Yeah. So was this a conversation that you had as a family or individual? I mean, was it you? Both, both. Both. So, you know, I would have it with them because I was in town and close to my parents. So I was seeing them regularly, but I made sure that I reached out to my brothers and sisters. And I also tried to prepare them to when they came in town, I would have these conversations with them, with my parents. So that we, again, we just got the whole tribe sort of on board with where we were going. Mm Were there were they more resistant to the conversation than you expected? Less so, or no? Um, you know, again, a continuum. Um, you know, some that were were more so. In fact, my wife and I were just talking about one um, part of the discussion. Is my parents didn't want any real important, you know, a large fanfare around the the ceremony for them, but a brother and a sister really did want a church service and a a proper service. And so we had a lot of discussions around that and we ultimately said, okay, that's fine. We can go that route, but you have to, to, you know, bring everybody in and get comfortable with it. And that just takes time. 
Yeah, that was one of the conversations um, my parents and I had um, was, and my brothers too, about um, them being more interested in what made people who were the survivors comfortable, you know, with dealing with their grief. What what did we want? Um, I mean, they they made lots of decisions, but um, their thing overall was we're not going to be here. We're not going to be at the service, right? <laughs> so what matters to y'all is, is a piece of it. And, and at the same time to be asking the question of, but what would feel disrespectful to your wishes? You know, that, I mean, there's that, that cross point of what do people need versus what would feel wrong or disrespectful to that person. Exactly. And that was probably the first breakthrough Lee was to get my parents to, for them to think, Oh, it's okay to talk to my children about my death because I don't, I think they still didn't want to have that conversation because they thought it might upset us or, you know, make us um, maudlin, but you have to have those conversations. And I think when they saw that I was willing to have them and it was okay, they started to open up. And then when my brothers and sisters had them, we all saw, okay, this is just, this is again, 100% of us are going to have to deal with this. This is a certitude. So let's, let's really explore it. And that, that sort of breakthrough changed everything. Mm. So there's two pieces to this, I think. Uh, One is you being comfortable having that discussion, like with parents, Mm -hmm. um, where it's about their death. And then there is the other part of having that discussion about your death. Mm -hmm. How did did discussions with your parents affect your conversations about your own death and dying? Well, just dramatically, because you have to get yourself situated and, and oriented to how you feel about it. So the fact that that I, as I explored it, I realized, number one, it, this is a certainty for me. And having these conversations with my parents helped me emotionally deal with the grief and, and helped me be much more certain about where things are going. And I said, that learning for me said, I have to visit that on my family than my children because I don't want them struggling with, with these things. This should be a topic that that we all you, you hate to use the term get comfortable with, but at least have and, and get to the point where we all understand um, the 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 topic because it is a certainty. Yeah, a, I, I wonder if that is the goal to get comfortable with it. You know, I mean, I, I, it it occurs to me that the only way that Chain. I mean, denial of death written back in the early 70s, and here we are still doing the exact same denial. You know, how do we break that other than becoming comfortable with the topic and the conversations? Exactly. And and what, what I te- try to tell the readers in, this, in my book is I saw with my parents just the absolute um, – just the the comfort, the the ease that they felt when when they knew that that we all were comfortable with it, and they knew they had made their decisions. It was just, um, you know, as the doctor was reading all of the problems to my mom after her stroke, you could see she was just going down that checklist and saying, "Yep, that's my ticket out. I'm I've had all the fun I can stand," mm-hmm. <laughs> and and just what, look. I just remember looking at her face and saying, "This is a woman who." is so ready for this and, and accepting of it because she knows exactly what is about to happen. And, and that, that was a gift. It was a gift to us. Um, and, and, and in fact, the doctor commented on it. He said, that's extraordinary. He said, normally 
people are you know begging us to do something, keep mom alive, et cetera. And here's your mom saying, nope, I'm just going to go home and go into hospice and that'll be the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this, the, so the, the part of being comfortable with something is being able to go, okay, this is normal. Mm-hmm. Um, we think of death as being abnormal. I mean, it right. only happens once in our own lifetime, but mm-hmm. um, you know, it, we're, we're surrounded by everybody else who's going to go through the same thing. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that's one of the unique things about the grief process is it's universal and yet very individual. You know, I mean, I, I remember this moment uh, after my grandfather died as we're, we're going to the service and I was young um, and we're driving along and I'm looking out the window and all these people were just going about their daily life. Mm-hmm. Nothing had changed for them. And it was that moment of going, they don't know how painful this is. Right. And, and, and I felt so isolated and at this, and then and what didn't cross my mind is that's going to happen. I mean, everybody is going to walk that path and, and do that. And so part of the uh, disconnect at that point in my life was not recognizing how universal it was. I was just aware of the individual pain of it. Um, but having the conversations often enough with family is the only way we make this a normal conversation. Absolutely. Cause that you said it so well, and that is, this is a universal thing, but, but we all experience it individually. And if you don't talk about it, then you're going to have your perception of it. Your, your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad are going to think about it differently. And unless you have the conversations, it can be very jarring on everybody. And so that's why that's the encouragement I have in the book is look, I'm just a knucklehead. I, but I went and had these conversations as a complete amateur. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a trained, you know, death doula. Um, but we just somehow kind of gambled our way to the to the finish lines. And the learning and the love that came out of that was really special. Mm-hmm. And I just don't want people to miss that. So because of that, how important that is, talk a little bit, Willie, about where people can find the book and, and what that's about and, and how that can be helpful. So currently it's available. We're doing a pre-sale on the Publicizer campaign, and that is just publicizer.com. And you can go to Estimated Time of Departure. Um, EstimatedTimeOfDeparture.com is the website. And as soon as the book is available through all of the channels and the ebook is available in about a month, um, it'll be available through the website and through Amazon and, and Books a Million and all the um, the other sources. And on the website, we also have additional resources. We partnered with a group called Lantern, which um, helps people have these conversations. The Conversation Project has lots of great resources for you uh, to go and, and start some of these discussions and, and ways to connect with local groups that are, are hoping uh, to help people have these conversations as, as um, conversation starters and people. Um, there's a list of death doulas there who will help you and actually um, have experience doing this and getting these conversations started. Mm. So for people who aren't familiar, Publishizer is kind of like the Kickstarter for books, right? And um, so you've got different packages available for people um, to first get in front of the line uh, for the book, but second, that there can be some other resources that are available uh, if they go ahead and take advantage of that. That's correct. That's correct. So the starting point, though, is the starting point for the ending point. (laughs) The starting point is estimatedtimeofdeparture.com. That's correct. And from there, you have links to different places. And all the other resources, et cetera. 
Yeah. And what I like about this, Willie, um, this is your, this is not your background. Your background is business. Um, mm-hmm. And and so what you've done is created something for um, everyday people to follow mm-hmm. a path of an everyday person who had difficult conversations, uh, which I think is it, often these books come from somebody who is, you know, uh, acad- academician or a clinician about that subject. And, it, and that does make it um, a little less immediate and, and approachable, but you've created something that's immediate, approachable, and not a big bite, just right. a beginning point. Right. In fact, it's an interesting um, story. When I wrote it, it's very, very short. It's only about 15, 16,000 words. And um, the publisher first said, no, it's too short. And I was going to add all kinds of information on what doctors say and what and end-of-life caregivers say and what insurance people say. And they all came back and said, no, it's a great story. It's a personal human story just as is. So let's get it out in this fashion. And, and I also think that that people don't want to read three and four and 500 pages on this, right? <laughs> they want a, an, an uplifting story um, that will make them laugh and cry and connect with the material and, and make it approachable. You know, honestly, I've read so many of those, you know, three or 400 page books. And I went, well, they stuffed a hundred pages into three or 400 pages, right? So, um, story, bad novel. Yeah. It's very nice when you get it down to what's important. Um, and, uh, and then people can, instead of wasting their time trying to hunt it out, it's, it's right there for them. Um, Willie, thank you for sharing so much and, and, and the vulnerability of that. I mean, you, you shared a very, personal, very vulnerable um, time um, and, and precious time that um, we all need to face, but um, not everybody wants to talk about it. So thank you for talking about it. Well, Lee, thank you for for letting me come on and talk about it, it because it is, again, the, the greatest gift for me was going through that and realizing here's this incredibly powerful, loving um, experience that I I had the privilege to go through and 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 we're trying to hide it under a basket and people don't see it. And I want them to, to break through and have that opportunity themselves. Mm, yeah. All right. So uh, hopefully if this uh, matters to anybody who might, you know, have some reason to, which means everybody <laughs> to have these conversations, uh, the place to hit is estimated time of estimated time of Willie, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You've done a service. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Thrive.